So <clears throat> we are finishing up the land covenant, the land covenant, otherwise known as the Palestinian uh, covenant. And so you got your notes there, your two sheets of notes for the Davidic covenant. Sorry about the streaks that are on some of those notes. For some reason, our, our copier doesn't have a self-cleaning thing that uh, with copiers, the toner can build up in it. And it's supposed to have a cleaning cycle that it goes through. Well, our new copier doesn't do that. <laughs> so, or it hasn't, I don't know if it's supposed to do it or not. It hasn't been doing it. So uh, that's, that's the, the problem there. Um, so to the land covenant, we have been talking about the fulfillment of the land covenant. And we are on point D, that it's fulfilled in the future. And uh, we talked about how it is to be fulfilled after the new covenant's fulfilled. And we looked at a couple passages for that. Deuteronomy chapter 30 uh, was the main passage for that. We also saw that it's to be fulfilled in connection with the new covenant. Jeremiah chapter 30 and 31. And uh, we went through that. And uh, this evening I want to conclude that study with looking at some past passages in Ezekiel. So let's just turn to Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. This is one of the uh, key passages related to the millennium, actually from all the way to the end of the book is, is going to be all millennial information. But we're in chapter 36, and I want to begin at verse 16. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 16. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying... By the way, uh, just point out here, that's a key phrase in the book of Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to me. So... That's one of those things you want to pay attention. It happens all over the place in Ezekiel. It's a key phrase. So the word of the Lord came to me saying, verse 17, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land. So this is talking about past tense. When they dwelt, the house of Israel dwelt in their own land. They defiled it by their ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary um, impurity. Verse 18, therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood that they had shed on the land and for their idols which they had, uh, with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, 
These are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. So this has given us a picture of the past. The condition of the nation of Israel involved in idolatry. And did you pick up on the emphasis that they had defiled the land and that this land isn't their land. It's the Lord's land that he's given to them. And so they're defiling the land because of their wicked ways and their idolatry. Verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this, that's judge Israel, for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which, you, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know I am the Lord, says the Lord God of Israel. When I, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. Verse 24, for I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of uh, out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. So uh, those last uh, two verses, actually those last three verses, 25, 26, and 27, are passages related to the new covenant. And so you see the connection between the land covenant fulfillment and the fulfillment of the new covenant. They're, they're connected. Verse 28. Then you shall dwell in that land I gave to your fathers. So this makes it explicit. This is talking about the, uh, the promise that God made to Abraham about the land. You shall be my people and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Verse 33. Thus says the Lord God. On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities 
and the ruins shall be rebuilt. Now that, that verse there indicates to us that this land that they're returning to and that this return that the Lord is communicating through uh, Ezekiel the prophet is not just some spiritual thing, some mystical thing, but it's actually physical. It's physical. It's earthly. It talks about cities here and the ruins of the cities. You can't speak of spiritual things that way. Verse 34, the desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all those who pass by. So they will say this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Verse 36. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted that which is desolate. And I, the Lord, have spoken it and I will do it. So again, this is goes into the fact that this is an unconditional covenant that God has meant. I will do it. The Lord says, I will do it. Uh, now turn over to chapter 37. Chapter 37. And uh, we're going to pick up in verse 21. This is only a few verses here. Verse 21. Ezekiel 37, verse 21. Then say to them, thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and I will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. They shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. They shall not defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned, and will cleanse them. Then they shall be my people, and I will be their God. David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they shall all have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. Then they shall dwell in the land that I have given to Jacob, my servant, where your fathers dwelt. And they shall dwell there, they, their children, and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. So again, we see that God's the one who says he's going to do all this. He's going to regather the Jews back to the land. He's going to put them in the land. They're no longer going to be two kingdoms. Because really right now, there's still two kingdoms. Israel, the northern uh, kingdom, was 
taken into captivity by the Assyrians. Then Judah, the southern kingdom, was taken into captivity. So they're still kind of two divided kingdoms. Well, the Lord's going to bring them uh, together and they will be one nation again, one kingdom again. David is going to be their king and uh, they're going to dwell in the land, the land that God promised to his servant Jacob. And so that lets us know that this is a fulfillment of the land covenant, what he promised to Jacob. So I, th I think if, you know, if we take these passages as they are, it seems pretty obvious that the fulfillment of the land covenant is something that God is going to do. Um, man doesn't take part in it other than in a passive way. Um, God's going to do it. And the description of them returning to the land means that it's going to be future because it hasn't happened yet. For instance, has anybody seen David? Anybody seen King David anywhere? No. Well, King David's going to be there. It says twice in this last passage that David's going to be their king and David's going to be their prince forever. So no David, no land. So this is going to be something that happens in the future. So the, the land covenant is connected to the Abrahamic covenant, and we saw that, but it's also connected to the Davidic covenant. We just mentioned that. And it's also connected to the new covenant. That's from the passage we just read before. So these covenants are all starting to come together, and they're all interrelated, interconnected, interwoven. And I think... To compromise any one of them is to affect them all. In some way, you do damage to all of them. Now, there are some Bible students who totally reject the idea of a future fulfillment of the promised land being given to Israel. Okay, In my mind, this is one of the greatest problems with covenant theology. Covenant theology is going to deny that they will deny that there's a future fulfillment of the land. Uh, certainly if there's any fulfillment of the land covenant, it doesn't go to the Jews. The Jews have been removed. They're going to deny that it's for the Jews. Um, and in order to do that, they either have to um, replace Israel with the church or morph Israel in some way into the church, bring, bring Israel into the church. However, if this were the case, then what do you do with the land covenant? What do you do? If, if Israel doesn't have a future, or if they have some way morphed into the church, what do you do with the land covenant? The church is never spoken of as having national boundaries. In fact, one of the characteristics of the church is that it is not national. It's not based on a single group of people, people group or ethnicity. 
all ethnicities fit into the church, but only the Jews fit into Israel. So what do, you, what do you do with all that? Well, there's only two things that I think that you can do to somehow make that work. The first thing that option you might have to do is you simply spiritualize the land. In other words, the land isn't land anymore, isn't earth, you know, dirt under your feet. It's not ground. So you, you spirit, where it says the land, you spiritualize that into something else. And it's basically up to your imagination within a certain limitation as to what you're going to make it. So that's one way to deal with it. You can say, well, we don't believe Israel will have a future in the land. That's not really talking about land. That's talking about something else. The second option um, that people take to deal with the idea that Israel isn't an entity in the future and they won't have a land is that... Um, you take the specific references to a particular land and you generalize it to the entire earth. So when it talks about returning to the land and they will have this land, well, that's not talking about Israel returning to the land. That's talking about the church and their possession of the whole earth. The church will be spread throughout uh, the entire world. And since Christ rules over the whole earth, the entire earth must be a fulfillment of the land promise. But, of course, the problem with this view is you still have to explain the particular passages that give pretty precise boundaries to the land. If it's the whole earth, where's the boundaries? There are no boundaries anymore. So what do you do with the boundary passages? You either ignore them or you explain them away. So, but even these two attempts fail to deal with the words of the Bible. They, they fail to deal with the text of Scripture. We have noticed that the land covenant is connected to and only to the nation of Israel. A geographic national connection. Furthermore, we have seen that there is an inseparable connection between the fulfillment of the land covenant and David as king. A geographic messianic connection. Finally, we've seen a connection between the land covenant and the new covenant. So the fulfillment of the land covenant is so interwoven with the existence of the nation of Israel, the promise of the Messiah, the spiritual transformation that comes with the new covenant shows us that a compromise in any of those areas brings compromise into all of those areas. If you don't have a land covenant, or if you don't make some adjustments to the land covenant, or let me restate that, if you don't have a land covenant, or you make adjustments to the land covenant, then you have to make adjustments to all the promises. One of the things that you'll notice when we get into the Davidic covenant is God says, I don't alter the words of my lips. 
when he's talking about the promises to David. So you can't alter it. It's unalterable. And that goes with any of these covenants where God says, I've made an oath, you know, and I've made a covenant. You can't alter. You can't, you can't alter it and be faithful to the word of God. So when we speak of the promised land, the land covenant, it is important to remember that God sees this land as special. The land itself, not just the political boundaries that mark off the land that Israel will dwell in, but the land itself. And throughout the Bible, as you read, you see references to when there's sin in the land, God brings judgment because the land is defiled. Because it is his land. It's his property that he's only given to the nation of Israel. This was one of the reasons God was so upset with the Canaanites. This was one of the reasons that God told the children of Israel to deal so harshly with the Canaanites. Get them out of the land. No matter what it takes, get them out of the land. And so the land is important. It's important to God. Our understanding of the eschatology or the end time fulfillment of the promised land is that Israel is not now in possession of the land. They have never possessed all the land that God promised to Abraham. A promise that he has repeated, that God has repeated throughout the history of the Jewish people. From a clear reading of the scriptures, we see that the fulfillment of the land covenant will happen in the future in connection with the second coming of the Messiah, the messianic millennial kingdom and the new covenant. So, to not recognize, to ignore, to neglect the land covenant to Israel goes along with rejecting that God has a plan for Israel in the future. So, getting rid of the land covenant, it's, it's just like getting rid of Israel. It's God's uh, people that he's going to work with in the future. I think this is an idea so opposed to the Bible that it's hard to imagine where it comes from. I mean, it's just as you read your Bible, as you read it plainly, it's hard to imagine. How do you come up with the idea that Israel is no longer the people of God and that he doesn't have a future for them and that he doesn't have this land for them? You don't get that from just reading the Bible. In fact, uh, a strength of dispensationalism is that it is the result of a literal, normal, plain interpretation of the Bible. Dispensationalism doesn't result in you interpreting the Bible literally. It's the reverse. A literal interpretation of the Bible results in you being a dispensationalist, pre-mill, pre-trib, everything that goes under that. So that's important to recognize. Um, dispensational thought, dispensational thinking, where God is working in different ways with different people, 
is a result of a literal interpretation of Scripture. It's not, you don't start with that. You start with the Scripture and you move from the Scripture to that. Okay, so any questions about the land covenant? Frank. Yeah, so the, the uh, question is in Ezekiel 37, verse 24 and 25. For those who reject that Israel will have the land covenant fulfilled in the future, what do they do with David here? David's mentioned as he will be the king over them and it mentions at the end of verse 25, my servant David shall be their prince forever. And I think they do just turn that into Christ. And, and the problem that I see with that is that even though David is in a sense a, a type of Christ, um, I, I don't like that. He's more of a prefigurement or a placeholder for Christ. Um, and, and we'll get into that, some of that when we get into the Davidic covenant. But it, it doesn't say anything about, you know, a king like David or a prince like David, it says, David, my servant, will be king over them. Which, if you believe in a resurrection, that's not a problem. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I'm sure there's probably more sophisticated arguments to it, but I just take the words for what they say. And um, as we'll see with the Davidic covenant, there's no problem. There's no problem having David reign over Israel and Christ rule over the world. David and Jesus Christ can both be in Jerusalem and that happened. That, that's not a, not a problem. David would be reigning under Christ. So uh, I would just take, take it as what it says and I wouldn't see any reason to try to, and I don't see any indication in the words of the text that would indicate to me this should be uh, the Messiah. Why does, so why does covenant theology always have the, this idea of what's called replacement theology, which is the theology, the thought that the church has replaced Israel? And um, I think it's pretty, it's a pretty complicated issue um, in my mind, it's pretty complicated but I guess the basic, most simplest thing I can 
say about that is it comes from how they read the Bible. So they read the Bible from the New Testament, then they go back into the Old Testament. So they start with the New Testament and then go back into the Old Testament. And that gives them, in their minds, that gives them allowance to change the meaning of words in the Old Testament to fit what they believe is the correct interpretation in the New Testament. And uh, so that's, some people call that the canonical approach to Bible interpretation where you, you're looking at the whole canon, but it's their, what we would call the priority of testaments. Their priority is New Testament first, then Old Testament. We believe you read the Old Testament first and then the New Testament because that's the way the revelation was given. God gave the Old Testament first and then the New Testament. And the New Testament doesn't change anything in the Old Testament. Doesn't change it at all. Um, matter of fact, a close study of the Old Testament reveals, you know, a total agreement with what's in the, the New Testament. There's no, they go together. There's no reason to change anything in the Old Testament just because you see something in the New Testament. So that's part of it, how they read the Bible. Um, the other part of it is, I think, in covenant theology, and we talked a little bit about this, you got these three covenants that are not biblical covenants, but these three covenants control everything you read in the Bible. So you got the covenant of works and the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace. And... Um, for history from the beginning of creation to the end of Revelation 22, all that fits under the covenant of grace. Okay, that's going to go in that covenant. And the main focus of the covenant of grace is going to be the salvation of men. Okay, it's going to be the salvation of men. And ultimately, that's what it is. Some people will say it's redemptive. Redemption is the theme of the covenant of grace. Some people will say, covenant theologians will say it's Christ. And that's why you'll hear a lot of covenant theologians talking about preaching Christ from every passage of the Old Testament. Okay, preaching Christ from every passage of the Old Testament. So that's going to be their controlling. But ultimately... Christ and redemption, that's all about God saving men, God saving men. And, you know, it, then I think it just comes into a time where the guys who develop that theology are living in the church age. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, you start about the fourth century A.D. 4th century and move on and then you have the development of this doctrine where you're replacing Israel. Interesting, interesting enough, Augustine, um, two, two major changes in his theology. So Augustine was a 4th century theologian. Two main changes in his theology 
that developed in the latter part of, of his life was he changed his view on eschatology and he changed his view on salvation. So, and those two things go together. And for him, they went together. One led to the other. So I, I think, you know, I'm sure there's a, there's a much more sophisticated, clear answer to that question. But I think at the end of the day, it boils down to they read their Bible backward instead of forward. And they come to it with a preconceived set of notions that they have to fit the Bible into. And that involves God getting rid of um, Israel and now it's the church has replaced Israel or Israel has in some way morphed into the church. So, but I, th that's where uh, the difficulty <laughs> with that position and I have not heard or read a good explanation of those who hold that, of what they do with the land covenant. What do they do with all these land promises? I mean, we looked at two guys and what they said, and they said it was either fulfilled in the time of Joshua or fulfilled in the time of Solomon. But we looked at those passages, and those passages just don't add up to that. You know, that's a, unless you're going to make those passages have to be a fulfillment, you're, you don't come to that conclusion in those passages. So, you know, I haven't, I haven't heard a good explanation or read a good explanation from any of them about how that works. Um, all right, let's, let's go on to um, your next set of notes. So the Davidic covenant, and only have uh, nine points, nine main points for the Davidic covenant. The importance of the covenant, the key passages of the covenant, the background to the covenant, the parties of the covenant, the nature of the covenant, the provisions of the covenant, the key terms of the covenant, an exposition of the passages. I don't know if we'll actually do that or not. We, we might get into the passages so heavily it would be just redundant to do that, but I threw that in there. And finally, the fulfillment of the covenant. The fulfillment of the covenant. So the importance, the importance of the covenant. Um, <clears throat> so the importance of the Davidic covenant I don't think can be overstated. As far as its importance go, it probably only comes second to the Abrahamic covenant with regard to the premillennial doctrine. So the doctrine that says that Christ returns before the millennial kingdom. Okay, in relation to that doctrine, uh, the Abrahamic covenant is probably the most important, but the Davidic covenant would be right at its heels coming in second. Often, Amillennialists who don't hold to a literal millennial kingdom on earth, often amillennialists ignore or neglect the careful study of this covenant as it involves David's seed, throne, and kingdom, 
which are all things connected to a physical, earthly King David of Israel. And so since they don't believe there's a literal kingdom on earth, they don't want to deal with things that talk about the earth and an earthly kingdom with an earthly king, because that goes against what they've already determined. Now, that doesn't mean every place that um, David appears or there's uh, some mention of a relationship with the Davidic covenant that amillennialists just ignore those passages. What they do is they tend to divide those passages up and they interpret them in two different ways. So those those parts of passages that seem to be unrelated to a future millennium, like the coming Messiah will be from the line of David, what you know, the coming Messiah, that doesn't necessarily deal with the millennium. So they interpret that literally. But when you have a passage that has clear millennial implications, they interpret those passages spiritually. Okay, and when I say spiritually, I really mean they make stuff up. It's not in the text of scripture. That's kind of uh, strong or harsh, but I don't know what else to call it. Because that's what they do. They don't agree with themselves about what the interpretations of passages are. So what? you can call it whatever you want. I'm going to say they make it up. Furthermore, we also should notice there's not just a problem with the amillennialists, postmillennialists, those folks. When it comes to those who are premillennial, uh, there's division in the premillennialists when it comes to understanding the Davidic covenant. For instance, there are some premillennialists who will argue that Christ Jesus is currently partially fulfilling the Davidic covenant by reigning on the throne of David in heaven. Okay, there's some premillennialists who believe that Christ is ruling and reigning now in some way on the throne of David in heaven. We reject that, okay? We don't see Christ ruling and reigning on the throne of David in heaven. So, the study of this topic, the Davidic covenant, is not merely academic. It has real implications for how you view Christ's present work and position. Where is Christ at now? What is he doing? Is he on the throne of David? Is he ruling and reigning over the kingdom of David now? Or is it something else? So it has real implications for understanding who our Lord and Savior is. It also has real implications for the work of the church and the relationship between the church and the nation of Israel. And while you think or you might conclude that the Davidic covenant might not have any direct impact on whether you're saved or not, which is true, you don't go to heaven because of what you believe about the Davidic covenant. It does impact the following areas. Your understanding of the Davidic covenant 
impacts the inspiration, authority, sufficiency, and profitability of all the Bible. The Davidic covenant is part of the Bible and therefore it is useful for us. It's profitable for us, but only if it's rightly understood. Secondly, the activity of the church and therefore the activity of believers today. The, the Davidic covenant, our understanding of the Davidic covenant has a direct impact on who we are as a church and what we as believers do today. Are we supposed to build the kingdom or are we in the church? Those are two different things. Thirdly, the relationship between the church and Israel. Okay, how you understand the Davidic covenant impacts on how you view the relationship between the church and Israel. A misunderstanding of the Davidic covenant can lead to merging Israel and the church together, which, in my opinion, goes against the testimony of scriptures. So keep in mind, as we look at this topic of the Davidic covenant, there is no tension between Christ Jesus being the Messiah of the Davidic line, the rightful uh, ruler on the throne of David. There's no tension between that, Christ being the savior of the world and Christ being the head of the church. There's, there's no tension between those things. Christ can do all of those things simultaneously, yet keep them all distinct. Okay, so there's, that's no problem. So that's why this, this covenant's important. This covenant's important, not something that should just be glassed over. So let's look at, the, well, let's just read the key passages, all right? Let's read the key passages. So first key passage I want you to turn to is 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we're going to start in verse 4. I was going back and forth. Well, how much of this passage should I include? I just decided, well, I'll include all of it. Because that's the easiest way to get the full understanding. Is you, you don't, if you just read it, you don't have to hear somebody explain it. Okay. So 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 4. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Of course, Nathan's the prophet. Saying, go and tell my servant David. Now we saw that, that same phrase before in Ezekiel. And uh, Frank asked a question. What do, you know, do people turn my servant David in Ezekiel 37, do they turn that into Christ? Well, would you turn it into Christ here? No. It's very clear, Nathan is going to be speaking to King David. So verse 5, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent 
and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So the Lord saying, have I ever asked for anybody to build me a house? Never asked anybody to build me a house. Verse eight. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. That sounds like the land covenant, doesn't it? Okay, yeah, it's related. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you, that's David, a house. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you, you will, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So that's the first key passage. The second key passage is found in Psalm 89 or the 89th Psalm. So Psalm number 89 So I would encourage you to read this whole psalm here as we're doing this study, but I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read verses 3 and 4 and then skip right down to verse 25, okay? 3 and 4 and then down to verse 25. Psalm 89, verse 3. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. Your seed I will establish forever and build up your throne to all generations. Selah. Now verse 25. Also I will set his hand over the sea and his right hand over the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. 
Also, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. His seed also I will make to endure forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my, gone out of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful, faithful witness in the sky. So this is an, another expression of the Davidic covenant. And if you go back through both, you see there's these very close parallels between what is said in 2 Samuel 7 and what is said here in Psalm 89. Now, let's consider the background to this covenant, the background. Now, these, are, these verses we've just read are not the only verses related to the Davidic covenant, but these are the main verses, the main passages, and that's what we're going to focus on because of that. Now, in considering the background, I want you to see that it's connected to the Abrahamic covenant. So turn back to Genesis chapter 12. You might not need to turn back to Genesis chapter 12. We've been wearing these pages out in our Bible. Okay. But if you turn back there to Genesis chapter 12. And notice at the beginning of verse 2. Where it says, I will make you a great nation. Nation. Then at the end where it says, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I think these two parts of the Abrahamic covenant can have a direct line drawn to the Davidic covenant. The national promise, because David's gonna be the king of the nation, and the nation will go as the king goes and God has said to David he's going to make his name great like the greatest of the men of the earth and then all the families of the earth will be blessed uh, in that so I, there's a connection there I also see a connection in the reiteration of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 17 so turn to Genesis 17 Genesis 17, verse 6. Verse 6 says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you. Notice this last part especially. And, what's the next word? Kings shall come from you. Kings shall come from you. So, 
even though that's a promise made to Abraham, David is going to be one of those kings. He will be one of those kings. So we can see there's this Davidic connection. Um, it, it, I think this is interesting. You might not find it as interesting as I do. Um, but in Hebrew, there are several words that can be used for a ruler or someone who is over somebody. Several, several different words that could be used. But here, uh, the Lord uses the unambiguous term, melech, which is king. That's what it means, king. Not just a ruler, he's king. There will be kings, it's melechim actually, plural. Kings will come from Abraham. So it's not just simply one who rules over others. This is talking about uh, royalty. Keep on in our connection with the book of Genesis here. Turn to Genesis chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49. And I want you to see here how the Davidic covenant is connected to the tribe of Judah, to Judah, the son of Jacob himself. So this is Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12. Actually, I'm just going to read verse 10. That's the focus, okay? Verse 10 is the focus. This is Jacob blessing his sons, and this is the blessing that Judah gets. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. So a scepter is the symbol of rule. And so part of the blessing that Jacob is giving Judah is that Judah will be the tribe from whom the rulers of Israel are to come. Okay? So in the middle of this verse, verse 10, it says, until Shiloh comes. Until Shiloh comes. Um, according to one of the best Hebrew dictionaries, the term Shiloh means him to whom it belongs. Him to whom it belongs. In other words, until the one to whom the kingdom belongs comes. This means that all those who are in the tribe of Judah, who will ascend to be ruler of the tribe of Judah, uh, everyone who rules in accordance with the promise that these people are only placeholders or prefigurements until the one comes to whom the scepter of rule actually belongs to. Okay, and so this has a Davidic flavor to it, right? Because David is from where? Where's David? Where's King David from? Hometown. Bethlehem of Judah. Bethlehem 
of Judah. Now let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. First Samuel chapter 17, verse 12. First Samuel chapter 17, verse 12. Now David was the son of the Ephraite of Bethlehem, Judah. That's what I want you to see. Bethlehem, Judah. So this is where David's from. This is, this is where his family is from. Now... I want you to turn back in your Bible to Ruth. Okay, this is the book right before 1 Samuel. Ruth chapter 4, verse 17 through 22. It's the last verses of the book. So it's the very end of the book. Ruth chapter 4, verses 17 through 22. Verse 17. Also, the neighbor woman gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, this is the genealogy of Perez. So pay attention here. This is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Amenadab, Amenadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon, Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. So it ends with David, it begins with Perez. Who is the father of Perez? Judah, Genesis 46, 12. Genesis 46, 12. The sons of Judah were Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. The sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamel. So the father of Perez is Judah. This puts David directly in line. He didn't just live in the land area of the tribe of Judah. He's in direct line to Judah. All right? Direct line to Judah. Um, we also see important information about this found in the genealogies of Jesus. Now, most often when you look at those genealogies in the Gospels, you look at them in relation to who Jesus is, right? I mean, that's why they're there. They don't tell us about Jesus. But I want to take a little different approach, and I want to look at them in comparison to what they say about David, all right? So you know these, and you can, you can look this up. But we see in Matthew's account, in verse 2, it talks about, Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. Judah begot Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron, so on. All the way down to Jesse. And Jesse begot David the king. Okay, now it's not David anymore. It's David the king. 
And Luke does the same thing, but he does it in reverse order. He starts with David. He says, son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, and so on, all the way back down. And it actually goes all the way to Abraham uh, there. And so we see this important linkage here in the background to the Davidic covenant that uh, the Davidic covenant is connected to the Abrahamic covenant. It's also connected to the tribe of Judah. And so we can expect some of these things to come up again. So from the blessing of Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, that we already read about Judah, from that blessing onward, there is an expectation, if not the realization, that Judah is the ruling tribe of Israel. Just like Levi is the priestly tribe, Judah is the kingly or royal tribe of Israel. And since David was of the tribe of Judah, it might be seen, especially by those in the days of David and his direct descendants, that David was the one to whom the kingdom belonged. He was a fulfillment of Genesis 49.10. Okay? Now, we know that that's not true because we have, we have the rest of the story. We have further revelation, even in the Old Testament, that tells us that's not true. Okay? But in David's day... People knew their Bible. They might not have copies of it laying around, but they knew their Bible and they knew this blessing. And it would be very easy for them to say, oh, David must be this one who the rule belongs to. So the Davidic covenant passages, these passages, don't, dis don't discourage against Believing that David is the fulfillment of Genesis 49.10. However, even in that passage, there's a futuristic aspect to that passage that points to a time after David. And so when we look at that passage and we also look at 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89, all of a sudden we move from David and now we're projecting out in the future and, and we see something or someone else in the future. At this point, we don't know who that is in our study. Now, we know who that is because we read our Bibles. But in our study, we haven't gotten that far yet. All right. So next week, we're going to take a look at the parties of the covenant. Uh, there's only two parties and a, a good exercise for homework. Good exercise for homework would be for you to go through the 2 Samuel 7 passage, go through that, look at how many times the Lord is referred to. Okay, Not just the name Lord or God, but also when it uses I or my or me, and it's referring to the Lord. Look at how many times... In the 2 Samuel 7 passage, it refers to the Lord. And do the same thing for Psalm 89. And so that's the first part. That's the first assignment. The second part of the assignment is do the same thing again, but for David. Okay? Do the same thing again for David. The third part of the assignment is see if you can find anybody else. Any other distinct individuals. 
that would be mentioned, okay? Just in, just in those passages we read. All right. That'll put you way ahead next week for next week, and uh, it, it'll, it'll be helpful for you to see that. So let me have a word of prayer and we'll be dismissed. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for this time that we've had together. Give us safety as we go. Protect us from the storm that's coming. Uh, be with those people who are uh, in the path of it and uh, provide for their needs. And, and Lord, we just uh, trust in you every day, not just in storms, but for our very existence, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Any questions or comments? We already did our questions on the land covenant. You can still ask questions about that, but we're just getting into the Davidic covenant.